0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm an by myself, so it's great to be here. Um, I thought what I'd do is, I wrote this special report about the future of news, and in particular the impact of the internet on the future of news. Um, And uh, so I thought it would make sense to look at both the specific and the the general. Um, The general would be the points that I made in that report, which uh, um, you're probably familiar with, but maybe the way I sliced it up would be helpful (coughs) for you. And then the specific would be how those um, apply to the to, to uh, the Economist itself. Um, the Economist is an unusual publication. Uh, we have a circulation of about one and a half million, um, and our circulation has grown continuously for as long as it's been measured. So like, we've had 52 consecutive six-monthly periods of uh, subscriber growth. So evidently, um, the problems that other publications are having. Um, so far haven't affected us Uh, so on the one hand you might say well therefore I'm going to be telling you that I've got all the answers and I'm I'm not saying that I've got all the answers Um, uh, one thing is that even at The Economist we know that uh, a lot of this is the result of luck and um, we can't expect it to go on and we are being incredibly vigilant about the changing environment Uh, the other thing is that um, I couldn't even even if I was being cocky about it say that we had all the answers because an awful lot of what we've done simply cannot be copied by other publications. Um, If you are, just to give an example, if you are Bloomberg Businessweek, one of the things that um, is appealing about the economist in America is that we're not American. That's not something you can copy if you're an American Mm Newsweekly. Um, So, uh, again, uh, the story will be one of uh, repeated accidents where the economist, by mistake, finds itself in the right place for social media or for globalisation or whatever. And uh, we are uh, very upfront about the fact that a lot of this was luck. Um, So, the structure of the uh, special report, uh, I kicked off by looking at the idea of a news crisis and... uh, um, David and Rasmus did this brilliant report last year um, on this whole question of, um, how the press is doing in different parts of the world and it started off with this very, very good uh, global perspective which is extremely uh, useful. That's where we're coming from at The Economist. But also because so much of the debate about this is covered by what's happening in America in particular. Um, and the really great uh, point that that chapter made, it had this killer statistic in it, which is the proportion of revenue that newspapers in different countries get from advertising. And in 2008, the, the figure for America was 87%. And that figure really uh, is the key to, to what's going on, I think. Um, that's why the US market has been uh, particularly badly affected by the, uh, the, the decline in advertising the migration of readers and advertisers onto the internet. Um, and it, it really is, in many ways, a very U.S.-specific thing. Um, the Internet challenges the local monopolies that grew up in America. Um, if you've got a local monopoly, well, you're kind of daft if you don't exploit it. So, of course, the American newspapers became very, very dependent on advertising. I always remember um, the guy who writes our sugar to call, Major Woodridge, who used to be our Washington bureau chief, and he said he remembered remember being told by a real estate Uh, dealer in Washington, D.C., how terrible it was that the newspapers were in such trouble and a lot of them were closing their D.C. bureaus. And this is because she used to do very, very good business selling enormous houses to to bureau chiefs who would come from, I don't know, the Denver Post or whatever, and they'd stay for three years and then they'd sell and then another person would come and have to buy another. And this was great business because these were very, very well-paid journalists and they could afford to buy big houses. And this was really bad news for her, but that shows you just how fat some of these newspapers have got. Um, So I think that figure is, is crucial. In, uh, the figure for Europe, I think the number we toss about is that it's 50-50 between more circulation efficient. and and, and, uh, and advertising. And that means that when uh, advertising revenue drops by 20%, it hurts uh, by reducing revenue by 10% in Europe, whereas it reduces it by nearly 20%, it's 18% in America. So uh, of course this hurts the Americans uh, much more. Um, and then the other problem, of course, being that, it, that it's Google not... Uh, not the online versions of the, of the news organisations that get the ad revenue. So that, that hurts as well. Google and Facebook uh, in particular, and, and uh, their ilk on the internet. So uh, I think this idea that of, the, of the crisis has been neatly skewered by David and Rasmus, that, um, that it's different kinds of crisis in different countries. Um, and also a lot of the talk of, crises, uh, of crisis comes from a of journalists who think the world knows them a living and wants, 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 wants to stay the same. Um, And it has to be counterbalanced by things like the growth in in India. Um, And I look forward to this uh, forthcoming report on the uh, comparative economics of of newspapers in different parts of the world, uh, because uh, people have made noises to me that the story in India might not be quite as as rosy as uh, perhaps it sometimes looks to outsiders, and uh, that might be about to change. Uh, Brazil is an interesting case as well. I think Brazil may have just flipped from being uh, an expanding, developing world market uh, for uh, for, for media, uh, for printed media, um, to a uh, developed world market where there's enough broadband that the the wealthy are suddenly less interested in uh, in buying newspapers. But uh, we'll we'll see what the numbers tell us there. From the Economist's point of view, the Economist is um, again unusual. Only about 30% of our revenue comes from advertising. We're actually profitable on circulation alone. So when advertising spending falls by 20%, that's a 6% drop. Say if it's assuming equally. Uh, Distributed, so um, so we're relatively less uh, affected by these things. Um, And uh, another thing that's helped us is that the American newspapers that had local monopolies were essentially in a position where, if they were lazy, all they had to do was print the AP, and they had the local distribution for the AP. Now you can get the AP or the AFP or anyone else you want to read on the internet. That's a bad thing, and so you would have thought that would push them towards doing more useful uh, local reporting, local government reporting, that sort of thing. In some cases, that's been the case. Most of the time, it hasn't. Um, In the case of The Economist, we haven't had this problem that we relied on commodity news. The thing we've always done is provide a global perspective. The idea is to be a global weekly, um, tell you what you need to know, um, tell you in in a reasonably small amount of space so that you can actually get to the end of it. Uh, and provide analysis on top of it. So this um, hollowing out of commodity news providers hasn't affected us for that reason um, either. Moving on to the new business models. Um, I have My favourite quote on this it comes from Thomas Hess uh, of Sony, and he's the head of music at Sony. Uh, and I think music is quite a helpful analogy here, if you look at what happened to the music industry. Um, he says the new model is there is no new model. Uh, there are lots of new models, and that's, I think, what's happening um, to news media as well. The old um, you've got money from circulation, or you got it from advertising, split. Uh, well, now there are lots of places you can get it from, and there are lots of different ways you can do it. There's no right answer. Uh, so you see news organisations moving into. Uh, I mean, the Guardian gets about a third of its online revenue from its dating site. It's cross-subsidised by Auto Trader. Uh, you know, the Washington Post is cross-subsidised by Kaplan. There are all these uh, interesting cross subsidies. There's the. Uh, the German, I think it is, and Canadian newspapers that have cruise line businesses. I mean, they sell tickets to go on cruises to their readers and then um, uh, put journalists on the boats to lecture them about exciting things. Uh, There are all sorts of models. Oh, there's the Swedish paper that came... I think it's Swedish, isn't it? That came up with the uh, slimming plan that it's licensed to lots of other uh, European newspapers. So there are all these sort of bizarre new forms of, of revenue. Wine clubs, uh, dating, there's all sorts of things you can do. Conferences is another one, so live events, uh, that's something that a lot of organisations have, have moved into. Um, and then, of course, there's the um, <coughs> charging for stuff uh, that you were previously giving, giving away, and the whole question of paywalls. Um, I am a big fan of the meter paywall model, uh, which the FT invented. Um, Pat, it was an intern, came up with this idea, but... Uh, it was then heralded as the, the way to do things and I really think it is and weirdly the FT has moved away from it recently the FT now makes you register to read pretty much anything I think you might get this first put free from social media but um, uh, weirdly having pioneered this model which is in between the give everything away model that the Guardian is the most famous component of in this country and the don't give anything away at all model that the Times is I think this is exactly the right thing to do because it, um, it means that you can set uh, the limit, at, in our case five stories a week and people who really want to read lots of stuff will um, will then trip the paywall beyond that point um, you can ask them to register and give them ten free stories a week and then you've got uh, the opportunity to, uh, to try to convert them but you still have the opportunity to make your stories spread on social media which the Times doesn't have and I always think if I was the publicist for, I don't know, George Cleary and he's coming to London, he's going to do one interview with one broadsheet newspaper, well I can tell you now it's not going to be the Times because no one will see that piece because it will not be able to go onto Facebook and um, occasionally people say to me uh I remember I pitched a story to the editor of Intelligent Life, our sister publication. He said, that sounds a bit like a column that somebody wrote in the Times over the weekend. And I said, great, no one will have seen it then. And, um, so I think, I think that, uh, that sort of uh, watertight paywall model is idiotic and unsustainable and it's entirely, a, uh, um, you know, I just don't, I don't think that's, that's going to work. Uh, oh, excuse me, sorry. Uh, so if somebody shares an article from, from the Economist online. Yeah. Uh, on Facebook yes. and for free? Yes, so we allow you to, to read five stories and I think we also oh, do first good. click free from social so, um, so if anyone if you've read five stories already that week and then you click on something on Facebook you can still see it okay. um, and this is what the New York Times has adopted this year I just think it's the I think it's the right thing the lovely thing about this model is that you can turn the dials um, so if you want to you can say uh, it's the election, we're going to make everything free this month. Or you can say, in this particular market, um, we have more advertising than we can... Uh, more, we have, we're have we selling out of advertising, <coughs> so we're going to give away more articles there, so we get more traffic. But in this market over here, we're not getting any advertising sales online, so we're going to t- turn the dial the other way. And the most ridiculous example of this is the Pennsylvania newspaper, which firewalls just the obituaries, just for people out of state, after they read more than a certain number of them. Um, And that's a very, very, very precise file. But it's because people in that part of the town (coughs) is, it's West Pennsylvania somewhere, they were moving to Florida uh, when they retired, and they wanted to read the obituaries of the people they grew up with in their hometown. So this newspaper had loads of traffic to its obituaries section from out of state. And that was hopeless from the point of view of advertising sales, because it's advertising sales were local, and the advertisers did not want to reach people in Florida. So they ended up with don't idea if it worked, but that's the point. The, the, the technology now allows you to build these very precise uh, uh, paywalls. So when you look at people like Clay Shirky railing against paywalls, um, well, I haven't talked to him about this lately, but uh, he seems to be railing against um, a kind of paywall that only a very few newspapers are still really pursuing, the watertight kind. Um, there isn't really a single kind of paywall anymore. Uh, there are many uh, different sorts of paywall, and uh, and I think uh, there's an enormous amount of space for uh, experimentation there. That said, I think there's probably room for some newspapers, and in this country the example would be The Guardian, uh, to support themselves entirely from advertising. I think The Guardian increased its overseas advertising revenue, since most of its readers are overseas now anyway. Um, if it increased its... Uh, American advertising revenue in particular, and, and we probably have to cut its newsroom in half. It's got an enormous cost base. But I think if they the thing is that everyone looks big compared to us. We have seventy-five journalists in the world. So we look at the New York Times with twelve hundred and we go, that's really quite big. And then we look at The Guardian with whatever it has, a thousand, and we think that's quite big as well. Surely you could run a newsroom of four or five hundred people. Um, and, uh, and then sustain it using, uh, using advertising revenue. And if not, then uh, maybe a smaller newsroom than that. So I think there is room. And a lot of these self-sustaining uh, startups, um, whether they're tech blogs or, uh, or Politico or whoever, um, I think they do, they do show that there, there are new models out there, but um, they probably just involve uh, wielding the axe in a way that uh, newspaper editors have so far been reluctant to. Um, from our point of view, then, we've gone for the meet paywall model um, c- coupled with something called All Access. And this is where, if you subscribe to the print edition, you get uh, access to everything on the website, and the, uh, the archive, all the rest of it. You also get access to all our apps, which is iPhone, iPad, and Android. Um, and you get the audio edition inside those apps all downloadable off the website. And the way we um, sort of explain that is we say, well, the main reason people cancel the economist subscriptions is because they feel guilty that they're not reading it and they sort of build up and I know just how this feels because um, I feel guilty about not reading The New Yorker and every so often I declare New Yorker bankruptcy and I say, I am never going to read These New Yorkers from more than eight weeks ago uh, it's just not going to happen and I remember this happened after Obama won the election and, um, and I just thought, look, everything pre-election is now irrelevant it's all this speculation about where these going. I declare bankruptcy and I just go right I'm going to pretend that there are no New Yorkers before that point and I'm just going to try and, and then I go through the others and decide what I'm going to read and Instapaper that or whatever. Uh, But anyway, so we know that that people feel guilty about not reading it. And if we give people more ways to read The Economist, then it's easier for them to stay on top of it. And so you can read The Economist on an iPhone in a crowded tube train. Um, You can read on an iPad, which has been incredibly successful. The audio edition means that for Americans in particular who have long commutes or like jogging, uh, Americans, what can I say um, <laughs> they will uh, then be able to listen to The Economist and you can make a playlist that, um, and you can have the articles in the order that you want so if you always read the business section first uh, you can do that but the idea is that you can bring your habits from the print edition to the apps and so our, our uh, iPad app in particular um, is really uh, built to be navigatable in the same way that the print edition is it's very simple deliberately it doesn't have lots of bells and whistles and it's been extremely popular as a result. In fact, the take-up has been much faster than we thought. We thought it would take two years to get to maybe 20% of readers um, reading on the apps. It's taken nine months to get to a third of them. Uh, so it's incredibly, uh incredibly fast uptake. The other important thing about the app, um, about the apps, is that we wanted to uh, preserve what I think is um, a very important but overlooked facet of the economist, which a website can't copy, and that is finishability. Uh, the thing the economist is really selling is the feeling, and perhaps it's an illusion, that you are informed when you get to the end of it. So you go, ah, there, I've read the economist. I now know what's going on in the world. Maybe you don't, uh, maybe it's just an illusion, but uh, uh, it is that it is that it is that the word. I can't think of the word. That's right. It's the catharsis that's what it is. It's the catharsis of finishing it uh, that that is is crucial and you never get that with a website. There's always more. And if you have an app that just takes the most recent 25 articles off the website and displays them to you on on a screen, you're never going to get to the end of it. You're going to feel overwhelmed by it. And what people want from the economist is this um, I call it sift, crunch, pack the, the sift what's important about the week. crunch it, tell me, tell me why it's important what I should think about it and pack it into a, uh, a format that's easy to consume. and that's what the app does in the same way the magazine does um, anyway, the four big shifts I think that are going on in the environment around all of this, apart from the business models um, are that news is becoming more social, more participatory more diverse and more partisan and these are the four things that I looked at in my special report um, so the social one is pretty obvious. Social distribution is increasingly important. It's the fastest source of traffic to uh, to news sites now, um, and you have to uh, acknowledge that the, that this is changing the way things work. Um, there are good things about it. There are bad things about it. The the good thing about it is that uh, is that things can be distributed more easily, uh, and the audience. Uh, there's a lot more feedback. You can see straight away from your like buttons what people. You can see this is a very popular daily chart. Here, 37,000 likes. Um, our cover on uh, Silvio Berlusconi, which was the best cover of the year. Uh, in fact, I to show you the numbers because they're quite funny. Um, the cover headline was "The Man Who Screwed an Entire Country," and uh, we subsequently followed up with "The Man Who Screwed an Entire Currency," because uh, he, he's done that too. Uh, within the first couple of weeks, we had half a million. Um, yeah, here we go. So if I go to this is our traffic, this is all public because it's just on Quantcast. Um, so, if you look at this year. Here we go. So this is been Laden here. <laughs> right? This is Bernuscone. <laughs> uh, now this was a big this was a big story uh, because uh, because we are known for our uh, run ins with Berniscone and um, you know everyone had a big a big week here. I mean our victory did incredibly well there. Um, but this is a story that only we were doing that week and people were very interested in uh, it so anyway, within half, the first half a million hits we had on that page we had 112,000 likes so you know, one in five people were hitting like and sending it out to social networks so that was, that's, that's great um, uh, that the audience is involved in the distribution um, I think the concern that um, I'm not too worried about it yet but I've spoken to people in the industry who are more concerned about it than I am is the amount of power this gives Facebook um, that, uh, that Facebook is becoming, you know, a sort of critical part of the infrastructure the way that Google um, already has, and um, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter in particular seem to have won. And, it's quite hard to see, I and mean, you sort of have to get used to them being the way they are. But but essentially, uh, it means that private companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter are becoming part of the infrastructure for uh, distributing things. And in theory, yes, we all know what happened to Alta Vista; they could be overthrown. Um, but in practice, you actually have to hardwire Facebook into your website. You are putting like buttons and and all this, you know, tweet. You know, this is this is kind of weird if you think about it. I mean, in the print era, to have um, uh, stuff that was specific to big private companies on your. I mean, it's kind of odd. Um, but anyway, so there are great advantages to it, but there is this sort of um, growing uh, quiet in some quarters. Nick Denton of Gorka is probably the person who. He, he thinks this is war. He thinks it's the news organizations against Facebook and um, uh, you know, this sort of thing. He's, he's quite vocal about it if you, if you want to find the, the most extreme version of that. Um, the Economist on Social shouldn't work at all. Because The Economist is uh, not about saying, um, let's sort of open up the process of, news, uh, of producing news to the audience and uh, invite the audience into the newsroom. And so we're absolutely opposite of that. Um, we're all about um, the voice of God, editorial code, that tells you what you should think. In fact, worse than that, we don't just tell the readers what they should think. We say, we'd like to give Obama a few pointers on how he can fix the economy. Or, or you know, let's do a leader next week advising the, uh, the incoming uh, Prime Minister of Spain what he should do, or, or whatever. Um, so this sort of voice of God um, approach um, is absolutely the last thing that uh, is supposed to be compatible with this new world of, uh, uh, of social distribution. And in fact, one of my colleagues... Uh, Andreas Kluth wrote a uh, very good survey of uh, what hadn't quite been named social media at the time in in 2004, 2005, um, called Among the Audience. And he wrote it, it was very successful, it won prizes and things, but I remember him saying at the time, um, I've, you know, I've seen this trend, but I think this is really bad news for the economists. We've got exactly the wrong kind of approach to survive in this world. Uh, people are going to turn against it, they're going to say, you know, why, why what qualifies you to give advice to, to us, or to, to say the way things should be and, and so forth. Um, well, it turns out that in a world where there's lots and lots and lots of stuff going on, um, a publication that tells you what to think becomes more valuable. And we have benefited from that. And my favourite um, encapsulation of this is from Larry Ellison, the boss of Oracle, who once said, I used to think, now I just read The Economist. <laughs> and um, so that's a part of that. Yeah, he actually said it. Yeah, no, exactly. well, Jack Dorsey is a huge economist fan as well. He talks about how the, the interface design for Twitter is based on The Economist. I don't quite follow his argument. Anyway, so there we have some sort of hardcore fan... Bill Gates has his copy of The Economist, hand-delivered it. Every week. Um, the other the other thing is, aside from the, um, actually, some people do want to be told what to think some of the time, and even if they disagree with us, it's like when you read the I don't know the restaurant reviews in Time Out or a publication that you know. Uh, I know that I always disagree with this guy when he reviews albums, and when this woman reviews restaurants, I always think the opposite. If you can calibrate yourself against against that, then actually it's not such a bad thing. But the other thing that works really well is that the Economist works brilliantly on social because it's a bad brand. So when you click like on this chart, this is a uh, a popular chart on our daily chart blog, um, and it's about it's a heat map of who drinks the most alcohol. Now, as you'd expect, Russia does pretty well, okay, and Britain does pretty well, and, and uh, actually even the French are quite hard drinking. But here's the weird thing: what the hell is going on here, right? Why are Sweden, and Norway letting the side down? Quite so bad? Um, this was the subject of much debate on Facebook, particularly among Swedes and Norwegians, but also on this page. I mean, I how many I have any comments it's got. Oh, 109, actually, not that many. I think a lot of it was, uh, was happening on Facebook as well. Um, this is the sort of thing that uh, does very nicely on social media, but one of the things that happens when you like it is that you say to your friends that you are the kind of person that beats the economy. And that badge brand, uh, it works extremely well for us. Uh, you may remember the episode of The Simpsons where, where Marge and Homer get upgraded to first class and um, Homer sits in the big chair and he picks up and goes, hey, look at me, I'm reading The Economist. Did you know Indonesia is is at a crossroads? (laughs) um, We've had to say, with every single article we've ever written about Indonesia, ever since we've had to say, you know, at the crossroads, (laughs) beyond the crossroads, whatever. Um, But anyway, the point is that there is this sort of um, membership of a club thing that that comes from reading The Economist. And social media allows you to participate in that without doing any more than clicking on a like button or a friend of yours. Like something from the from the Economist, and then you can click that you like it too, and you're you're saying, uh, look at this. And so this, and the lovely thing about this daily chart is, and this blog, generally daily chart, is that it is um, an encapsulation of what the Economist is all about. It's sometimes silly. It's based on hard data. It's based on analysis. It's often quite quirky. It takes a global view. So it's a very good ambassador for us. Uh, it's out there in, in social media. Um, that's not actually why we set it up, but it turns out to, to work very well. And you know, the, similarly with the with the uh, covers and things. Like like that. Um, they do well out there. We're also uh, very effective on Twitter. There was a great social flow um, analysis that looked at the metric that everyone follows here is media clicks per tweet and uh, we've done very well on that uh, measure. Uh, essentially, we have, I think it's 1.3 million Twitter followers now. The New York Times has about 4 million. So you'd have thought that every time they tweet something, they would get roughly three times as many clicks on it as we would. Um, but in fact, we get more than twice as many as they do. And it's because our audience is much more... Uh, sort of defined, I suppose, the average New York Times reader is less interested in the average New York Times story than the average economist reader is interested in the average economist story, because economist stories come from a, um, they're usually analytical, they're usually trying to say, the way you're thinking about this, um, here's a new way of thinking about it, and uh, so that means that we get better take up. I think we have a clear idea of what we're aiming for with our, with our readers. So should, social shouldn't have for us, but it turns out it does. Uh, participatory media, this idea of um, what's sometimes called, and Nick Newman, I think said that this had been domesticated to be called user-generated content, which was a sort of, well you stay over there everyone, it will be the journalists over here. Um, and this is something that's particularly scary for, uh, for old school journalists who, who don't like um, anyone just able to comment on their articles and things like that. Uh, I, think, I think the number of people who think that is declining uh, fortunately. We are not doing a lot in this, in this area I have to confess, and uh, you know, We've tried doing things like uh, crowdsourcing the big Mac index and, um, and things like that. We've had a few goes at it. The main approach that we are taking on the participation front is uh, to do more to encourage um, commenting and discussion on our site. Um, we have the most incredibly high quality of comments um, on our site, particularly on our blogs and particularly on our economics blog, Free Exchange. Um, uh, on some of the other blogs, yes, it quickly boils down to... Uh, uh, Israel, Palestine China versus America but that happens everywhere on the internet but I'm always amused when economist journalists come to me and say, have you seen the um, you know the idiotic infantile uh, discussion that's going on underneath this post on, on the quantitative easing or something like that and I, <laughs> you obviously are not looking at comments of the rest of the internet because you know, this is actually quite a, a serious and major debate with evidence of, you know people listening to each other which doesn't really happen on all sides um, so when you have the kind of readers we do who are Uh, some of the cleverest uh, and best informed uh, people in the world. Um, Getting them to talk to each other and uh, uh, being able to learn from each other is a a great thing. So what we're trying to do is encourage more of this. Part of the problem is that our rather ancient technology back end, which we've uh, finally uh, switched over entirely to a much more modern system this year, uh, made commenting rather difficult. We had a professor of computing at Cambridge, Ross Anderson, um, and his students are always the guys who break the Oyster card or the new chip and pin system or whatever. Whenever there's an academics at Cambridge have always have broken such a type. It's always, always his his lab. Um, and he couldn't. He wanted to register uh, and leave a comment, and he couldn't get it to work. And there was some problem with the version of Flash on his browser. And I don't know what was going on, registration, it was all not working. And when, you, when Ross Anderson can't get into your site to leave a comment, you've got a problem. Um, so we have been trying to make it easier, and uh, we're going to allow things like social login, we've already simplified registration, but essentially we put too many hurdles in front of people. Now, this may explain why the quality of comments is so high. You really, really have to run a comment. Um, so it may be that when we allow Facebook and Twitter logins, we will get a lot more comments but a lot lower quality. And I suspect there will be some decline in quality, but we are also putting in um, things like threading and upvoting and and, uh, sorting of, of comments. Uh, to, to compensate for that, so the, the goal of our um, of our community strategy is to allow our readers to benefit from the, the expertise of other readers in the same way that they benefit from the expertise of the journalists, and uh, that's what we're making a big push on in the next few months. So um, we are not sort of big on send us in your pictures of this, um, but, uh, but that's the way we think the Economist brand fits with this new sort of participatory approach. We also have very highly regarded debates um, that are these sort of in fact they're set piece Oxford style debates. Uh, let's see if one of will load here. Um, where you have... Here we go. So you have a proposer and an opposer, and then you get everyone to comment down here. Here we go. Um, and then you get voting, you can see how the voting's changed. So this one is on carbon capture and storage. Will it ever work? Um, yes, you can't rely on them. No kidding. Anyway, so this is another form of participation, and this is, uh, this is very... Uh, highly regarded and is, is I think a sort of economisty way of doing, of doing debate online. Um, diversity. There are lots of new actors and lots of new tools in this space. Um, you know, the ones people think of straight away, WikiLeaks, Huffington Post, uh, NGOs doing journalism, uh, philanthropic j- journalistic organizations uh, startups that are uh, entirely web-based, obviously blogs. Um, then there are all the new tools, uh, data visualisation, live blogging, multimedia, um, the question of whether you aggregate uh, and so on. Um, I think this is all a good thing. It's only bad for the incumbent news organisations. Um, they're, they're the only people who lose out from this. From the consumer's point of view, this is fantastic. This is the golden age of, of access to, to information. There's an amazing amount of um, uh, innovation going on uh, and new approaches. And this is, uh, yes, stretching the definition of what, a, what journalism is, which Americans in particular seem to be. Uh, very interested in because you actually have to qualify as a journalist there and um, and if you talk to journalists in America they've actually studied journalism. Um, I don't think anyone at The Economist has that I know of. And uh, certainly, when I worked on on the Fleet Street newspapers, it was sort of you know if you certainly if you studied this as an undergraduate, it would be um, you know it would actually be counted against you, I think. Uh, But I think that this this desire to police the boundaries of journalism, which isn't the same thing as uh, as that, but I think it comes from this same idea that um, that journalists are ought to be a separate caste, and that other people shouldn't be allowed to join it or something. Uh, I think if you look at Um, what a lot of NGOs are doing. They're actually hiring people who used to be journalists elsewhere in a lot of cases. Uh, But my favourite example is probably the Sunlight Foundation and um, and this sort of presentation of data. And it really is uh, an automatic process where they build a database of um, of politicians and who they take donations from. And then when there's a hearing they work out who the politician who's speaking is and then they tell you who is funding it's as simple as that. Uh, so it's, it's essentially an automated process. If you had clever enough software to recognise the people, you'd be able to do this without any human intervention at all. But I still think it counts as journalism because it is delivering relevant information to people. Um, so I think there's some very interesting things happening about the, the definition of it, and I think trying to sort of nail it down is is, is probably silly. Um, as far as this diversity is concerned, it has it has hurt the incumbents um, because there are suddenly lots of very you know opinionated and loud bloggers and, and uh, 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 aggregators and so on. And so lots of newspapers think this is bad. And even Google News, if somehow you, some people think that's bad. Um, when all they do is send you traffic. Um, again, we benefit because we are a filter. And the noisier the environment is, the more demand there is for a filter. Um, so we have, in common with other weeklies and bi-weeklies, um, ended up with a model where we publish um, our stuff in the print edition online, and in between we blog. Um, and that means we can talk in the in a blog in a web tone of voice on the on the internet. We can participate in things like the discussion of economics now happens in blogs. That's where it happens, and um, we need to participate in that. And so we do. And I think. Uh, just as journalists are used to the idea that in order to cover your beat you have to go to the right uh, bars or conferences or uh, whatever the uh, milieu is that is appropriate for the subject you're covering, um, you now need to participate in the the conversation online as well Um, so on the one hand we embrace that part of it and on the other hand we benefit from the fact that there is so much of this going on that it drives people um, to want something that filters out the important stuff each week which is what we do Um, I think an interesting move is the uh, the question of aggregation. If you look at what the Atlantic has done, the Atlantic just hired 15 people in New York um, to run essentially a highbrow Huffington Post. Um, And they they distill the the news, the week's news, or in fact the day's news, um, all the time. So they'll say, you know, what are the five best pieces to read on the clashes in Egypt now? Um, And that's really useful I think and I can see why they've done it, their, their traffic has, uh, has benefited enormously, I think the Atlantic is doing some great things at the moment um, would we do that? I definitely would I think we're already um, an aggregator in a sense journalists have always been aggregators and this idea that aggregation is new and bad, it's just silly, uh, talking to lots of sources and, and formatting that in a way that's uh, informative <coughs> is a kind of aggregation and I think there's a spectrum um, so in a sense we do that sort of aggregation but uh, I don't think we want to go down the um, uh, the approach that the, maybe the, the Atlantic has. I, can, I, I think it's uh, appropriate for them. But in our case, um, there's part of the value of what we do is that we give the uh, the readers an amount of content each week that they can get their arms around and print. And the stuff we do online is um, is additional if they really want more. Um, but I I don't think that I, there's a limitless. Uh, appetite for, for more there. So I'm happy with the, the, the amount of output that we have now. Uh, partisanship is the other uh, big thing. This is mostly a debate in America because I think media outside America don't have quite the same obsession with uh, impartiality. Uh, John wrote a brilliant piece about this earlier this year. Uh, did you use the word foxification in that piece no, as well? no. Um, Alas. Alas. Okay, but well, anyway, um, I mean, I, 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 my take on this, and this is mainly an American debate, and I think it's mostly quite silly, um, but impartiality, uh, or at least the sort of way in which it's venerated in America, which is sort of, you know, the he says, she says, I don't agree with either of them, so you can tell I'm. Um, I'm impartial a lot of this came out of um, a particular combination of economic and historical circumstances the local news monopoly meant that you, you couldn't afford to if you were the only newspaper in town you couldn't afford to alienate um, uh, most of people or well, half of your readership if you took a particularly partisan line one way or the other um, so that that encouraged uh, reporters to to, uh, to really you know, not take a, a, a political position one way or the other. Similarly, the Telegraph did as well. Um, when you were writing a, a story that was going to be shared over the Telegraph with lots of newspapers, you didn't know what their uh, political meanings were in the mid-19th century, then you would write it in a, in a telegraphic style um, where, where you wouldn't take a, a opinionated position. Um, and then professionalisation, obviously, in the early 20th century, also, you know, the idea that a, a journalist was like a detective or like a scientist and that there was a sort of scientific principle um, was, is, of course, it is a very appealing one. Um, but that said, I think that uh, it's sort of gone much too far. And with Jay Rosen on this, um, the view from nowhere is unhelpful. I mean, the idea that you need to have balance in an article about climate change or whether um, vaccination causes autism, or something like that. I mean, it's just silly to have to have a. We I mean, don't have balanced. Um, uh, there are some subjects where, where people don't. If you're writing about the Holocaust, you don't say, "Well, we need someone to, to for this to be balanced to say the Holocaust was a good idea." I mean, so I, I just think this is this is going a bit far. And I think even with some of the coverage of the debate, uh, sorry, of the, of the budget deficit this year, um, you know, some of the plans put forward by some politicians added up and some of them didn't. And that's a matter of, you know, you can analyse it and you can work out whether what they say makes sense. Uh, that's not a matter of partisanship. It's a matter of, uh, of what's going on. I think we're, um, The economists, we are weirdly uh, transparent and not transparent. Um, so I, I also like David Weinberg's idea that transparency is a new objectivity, that if you say where you're coming from, then, then uh, essentially you say what your opinion is, but say how you arrived at it and where you're coming from. Uh, at The Economist, we're constantly saying we're a liberal newspaper. Of course, Americans may not always interpret that in the right way. In America, as our deputy editor once remarked, um, liberal means you're too left-wing on social matters, in, so it's an insult. Uh, in France, liberal is an insult in the opposite direction. It means you're too right-wing on fiscal matters, and we are proud to be both. Um, <laughs> so we believe in you know uh, in social liberalism, gay marriage, legalized drugs. Uh, we also believe in uh, in fiscal liberalism. So uh, you know let people decide how to spend their money rather than taking it off them as taxes. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't a, really a political party that um, takes. Those positions, uh, uh, the whole left-right divide just doesn't really. You know, Republicans say, "Well, we believe in in a free market, but when it comes to the bedroom, we're going to try and regulate." I mean, it's just. Uh, to, uh, anyway, we say where we're standing, and uh, we say we're a liberal newspaper, but we mean in the John Stuart Mill kind of nineteenth-century uh, approach. We had a letter pinned up by the the lift this week from somebody in America saying, "I'm cancelling my subscription because your uh, your uh, your rag just pebbles liberal claptrap." I think he meant. We were being too nice um, to a barber or something. Uh, but I mean, how he could have not noticed that we call ourselves a liberal newspaper, I don't know. The expression as a liberal newspaper appears quite often. Um, anyway, uh, on the one hand, we are open about our biases. We like free trade. Uh, we were founded to promote the cause of free trade. We believe in free markets. Uh, we believe in liberalism in that 19th century. Um, Format. And um, that means even if you don't agree with the politics, um, you can still read us and so understand where we're coming from. So, in fact, um, it is a, a common occurrence that I meet someone who works for an NGO, uh, for example, so they'll be a bit more right on and, and uh, left wing than the economist on most things, and they'll say, you know, I can't stand the leaders and I ignore them, but your coverage of Africa is really or okay. um, And so the point is that they are able, as I am with, you know, the restaurant reviews in, in a particular newspaper or the album reviews in another one, I'm able to. Uh, use my knowledge of the bias of the person that I'm reading to understand uh, what I think based on what they say and uh, so I think you know, if, you're, if you're straightforward about where you're coming from um, then people can uh, calibrate what they're reading accordingly um, the other way, the way in which we're not so transparent is uh, is our anonymity and um, that's extremely unusual that we're still uh, fans of the anonymous approach, we have uh, quite a um, carefully enforced house style I wouldn't say it's rigid because it's quite a fluid house style. Um, but the anonymity, the idea is that each of the articles is the voice of the economist, and when we write, we are speaking as the economist. And this, I think, reflects that we're relatively small, with the number of staff is smaller than the Dunbar number. So, uh, you know, fewer than 150 journalists. But it's possible for all the journalists to know all the others. And for any given subject, you know who the person on the staff who knows all about it is. And if you're writing a leader on it, you know who the people who you'll have to persuade about that leader are. Um, so, That means that you do have this sort of uh, uh, hive mind approach, and that's really what uh, gives us the anonymity. That said, there are places where it's started to slip. Online, um, it looks weird if you have a blog about... uh, Here we are. So if I go to our... If you go to Democracy in America, which is our US politics blog, um, we have several bloggers, and they want to be able to disagree and argue. And so you can't have them all just being the voice of the economist. Um, instead, you give them initials. That's what we did. So we talk about the fierce contest between reason and logic. Um, this is, if that's the fierce contest, then this is the shameless compromise. Um, actually, this one is by all of them, so it's just as by The Economist Online. This is where we did a live blog of the debate last night. But normally, um, each of the bloggers is identified. In fact, you can see their initials here, EMJF. And if you look at another post, this one is well, that one's a video, so... Here we are, EG. This is actually Erica Grider in Austin. Um, And in practice, when I used to cover telecoms, people in the telecoms industry knew that a piece about telecoms was by me. So I think the anonymity is less important than than, uh, it sometimes looks to outsiders. The other thing is it's really only journalists that look at bylines, as far as I can tell. So I'm not sure that that most people are bothered by it. Um, But anyway, I think this... uh, uh, shift towards a more opinionated a, a greater diversity of more opinionated sources is, is probably likely in America and I'm not sure what's such a bad thing, it's easier to synthesise different views, this is why Google News was set up to make it easier to synthesise different views um, and where this is, my conclusion from all of this is that we're going back to the coffee house that this, is, this is very much a return to the sort of coffee house era of, of journalism in the sense that um, an awful lot of the things that, have, uh, that are being swept away are relatively recent innovations of the mass media era. So they're post-1830, the steam press, broadcast, the idea of um, news as a, as a one-way transmission of ideas. Um, we're really going back to the era of, uh, of pamphlets and broadsides and house discussions leading to more pamphlets and broadsides. Um, and uh, the community being involved in the distribution, and uh, the news being the basis of you know the thing you convene a discussion round. Um, uh, I think it's uh, Megan Bergadio uh, who says that, um, that, you know, the publication used to be the end of the story for journalists. And now it's the beginning uh, because it's the beginning of the of the conversation that ensues. Um, So I think all that's a good thing. Um, I think the main area of concern is what happens to accountability journalism as it's sometimes called in America in this scenario. And the honest answer is we don't know. Um, I think that it's possible to be Uh, rather romantic about how much of it was going on Mm -hmm. before, Uh, but certainly there is uh, less of it uh, than there used to be. And If you look at, say, what's happening on the west coast of America where the local papers are all being crunched together and they've got a shared newsroom in Oakland or something, the amount of reporting going on in City Hall is less than there used to be. that said, I think there are lots of uh, interesting things going on—the sort of transparency movement, uh, the open government movement. Uh, there are more sources of uh, potential accountability than there used to be. So I'm optimistic that we'll find a way through this. Um, but it really is no more than a, than a gut feeling. Um, I think that's the—I think that's the only drawback of any of these changes. I don't think. Um, Journalists can complain that, uh, and say that the world owes them a living, any more than coal miners or people who work on production lines in Detroit that make cars can. Um, the world doesn't owe us a living. We have to do something useful, um, and the, the things that we have to do uh, to be useful are different from what they were. Um, but I just uh, I have to you know, be upfront about the fact that the accountability journalism is, we. This was uh, someone put their finger on this straight away at the uh, event we did with Nick Newman uh, you know, how, how, what's the answer to that um, I, don't, I don't claim to have it but I see enough interesting experiments going on that I think the idea of the watchdog web um, may uh, turn out to uh, be some kind of answer um, so that's pretty much all I wanted to say uh, in the formal bit and I'm very happy to take your questions thank you